I think I would simply be nice to the boy. Yeah, just be nice to the boy. It's pretty easy. Yeah. Don't don't <laughs> don't chain him up in a prison cell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Castle Bravo, a Godzilla vs. Retrospective. I'm Derek. And I'm Charlotte. And we're two siblings here to examine the history of the Godzilla franchise one movie at a time. Charlotte. Hey. How's it going? It's <laughs> been a hot minute since season one ended. Yeah. And lo and behold, we're starting season two up in November again, which we might as well just make the official plan every year and every season. Yeah, yeah. I I think our last, uh, at least our last call together was in December. For like recording. Yeah. I don't know. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's been, it's been a while that we've given ourselves this break. Um, I've learned a lot about editing and developed some new tools that are going to make this a lot easier on me in the future so we can churn these episodes out at a faster rate. But... There's there's other complications where we've made this uh, a scheduling nightmare that we'll get around to <laughs> explaining in a moment here. But good news, good news for listeners. So this being this really shouldn't be anybody's first episode of Castle Bravo. Uh, but in the event that you've decided to jump in with us at the beginning of season two, what is Castle Bravo? Well, Castle Bravo is me and Charlotte going back through season. I expect season two is going to be very different from season one. Season one was us beginning with the original Godzilla working forward through many movies that would either that were either direct sequels to Godzilla or would become connected to Godzilla over time, mostly by Godzilla creator and original film director Ishiro Honda. We examined kind of the life and works of Ishiro Honda some of the sociopolitical themes that he put into a lot of those movies that made them I think elevated many of them over kind of standard pulp sci-fi of the mm-hmm. time. We talked a lot about the craft that went into these movies that I think surprised both of us coming at this from a more mature analytical kind of frame. Um, yeah. And season one ended up being this perfect, perfect 10 year period uh, where we took the first Godzilla in 1954 all the way up to Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster in 1964. So 10 years of Godzilla, 10 years of Ishiro Honda's filmography, um, the introduction of uh, Rodan and Mothra, and you know Godzilla vs. King Kong, a lot of iconic movies, kind of leading into Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster being the moment where Godzilla really became the hero of this franchise rather than just a recurring big monster. Right. Season two is going to also cover a decade of filmmaking. We're going to begin with, well, roughly a decade. We're going to begin with today's movie, uh, Frankenstein versus Berrigan in 1965. It's also frequently known as Frankenstein Conquers the World, which is its Western title. That's the one we watched. Yes, that's the one we watched. (laughs) And that's going to go all the way up to 1974 when the Showa era of Godzilla ended with Terror of Mechagodzilla, which was actually, if I remember correctly, Ishiro Honda's final movie he ever directed. Oh. I am not entirely sure. The, the, the story of the first decade of Godzilla 
we kind of discovered in the process of watching the movies how they were clearly not intending to make Godzilla a massive franchise, but instead making a lot of unconnected movies with surprising levels of, of sociopolitical themes to them and surprisingly strong, sometimes even radical messaging. But looking at season two, I think we're going to end up seeing the opposite looking at this. I think we're going to watch the death of themes in Godzilla as it becomes as more directors get their hands on it, as the franchise becomes more aimed at families and increasingly at younger audiences and becomes less scary, less, you know, sharp in its criticism and, you know, just becomes big, big monster movies that we kind of know them as here in the West. I'm ready yeah. to be wrong about that. Today's movie didn't fucking dispel that idea. No, I will say. <laughs> So I don't really have a plan for what season two's overall narrative is going to be. But I think after season one saw the buildup of Godzilla into this franchise, I think this next decade, we're going to see that bite Toho in the ass. I think we're going to see Godzilla become, you know, kind of meaningless blockbusters that'll probably still be very fun to watch. And we're going to hit the oversaturation point on Godzilla to the point that they put the entire franchise on ice in 1974. So. Yeah, we're sure we're sure starting with an interesting movie. Yeah, yeah, I (laughs) Frankenstein versus Berrigan. Or as mentioned before, Frankenstein conquers the world. We were not able to get a good Japanese copy of the movie. I was able to to source an English dubbed copy. Now, the good news is that the movie is not heavily edited in its Western release. So we were stripped of having like a good quality copy. We didn't, you know, we had to see the four by three full screen version instead of the original theatrical widescreen. Mm-hmm. We had to deal with incredibly racist uh, voiceover work. <laughs> I mean, some uh. of the most M- Mickey Rooney and Breakfast at Tiffany's level racist shit. It's a reminder we got kind of spoiled in season one with having so many good Japanese Blu-ray copies. But yeah. Here we are, you know, or the Criterion copies. What I'm noticing is that mostly the movies that Criterion didn't pick up and bring to the West and clean up are the ones that I had to get crappy copies of. So, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So. I'm thinking. Let's talk. This is usually we would go straight into the plot, but I want to talk a little bit about the movies behind the scenes and kind of how this movie came to be. Before we do that, okay. Seeing as this is the first episode of the season, but also that there's kind of a a bit of lead up to this, right? This is not a Godzilla movie kicking off season one or season two, excuse me, of Castle Bravo. (laughs) But we talked a little about this in season one, you may remember. Toho had been trying to make a Frankenstein movie for a long time. Yeah, I was thinking about that when I watched it. The original script for King Kong versus Godzilla, if I remember correctly, was King Kong versus Frankenstein. And after and, you know, and then they ended up going, well, let's use Godzilla instead. Let's use one of our monsters that we have that was a big hit. And that kind of accidentally helped catapult Godzilla further to stardom at right. the time. I do not remember if they had thoughts of Mothra fighting Frankenstein 
I do know that they planned on and and ended up scrapping a Godzilla versus Frankenstein as a sequel to King Kong versus Godzilla and ended up going with Godzilla versus Mothra instead. I'm kind of stuck on uh, Mothra versus Frankenstein because they're both immortal. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, 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 I think I remember that. I'm going to admit that that is not something that I sourced and noted, but that's what my potentially faulty memory is telling me that was worked on it or, or thought of at some point. So Toho had been looking to use Frankenstein's monster, a giant version of Frankenstein's monster in a, a big monster movie for years now. And now only in 1965, are they finally getting around to it? Mm-hmm. So Charlotte, why don't you tell us what, what the fuck even is Frankenstein versus Berrigan? So Frankenstein conquers the world starts with a scientist in clearly Nazi Germany uh, working with some goop. And that's, that's what I wrote. It's some that's goop. basically what's happening. It's it sure goop. is some goop. He's got some very colorful liquids in Erlenmeyer flasks all over the place. Yeah, yeah. Classic laboratory. Yeah. And he's working with this beating heart and this fluid, and it all gets confiscated, and he's devastated by this destroys his lab you know and then they transfer the heart over to the japanese and one of the things that they discuss there is that frankenstein's heart can never die this is very important we should be clear they keep referring to frankenstein's monster very specifically as frankenstein right which is, I mean, you know, the, the classic, like, nerd correction thing. Of like, actually, Frankenstein was the doctor. But, like, yeah, the, this movie uses Frankenstein to refer both to the doctor and to the monster. Right. I don't think they actually refer to the doctor very much at well, all. Well, they don't. The implication is clearly that that's Dr. Frankenstein in the beginning, right? But, like, working for Nazi Germany or working right. within Nazi Germany? Because right. it's set in World War II. Yeah, As yeah. we will very unfortunately find out soon. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> because they get the heart to the Japanese, and they're basically just discussing what it does, and then the nukes drop. Yeah, and their lab is, I guess, in, in um, Hiroshima. Hiroshima, yeah. So the, they've got Frankenstein's monster's immortal beating heart, and then the nukes get dropped, and it becomes irradiated. And... That was the most, um, what's the Robert Pattinson movie where uh, in the very end of the movie he goes to work and it's 9-11? Like, (laughs) it was that. It was like, oh, we've got Frankenstein, World War II, the Japanese have taken the heart, and now it's the the Hiroshima (laughs) bombing. Yeah, I mean, it it starts. An awful lot happens in like three minutes. Yeah. So then they go to after the nukes have dropped and they are in a hospital where everyone that was affected by the nuclear blast is being treated. And we have our handsome lead scientist man, Dr. James Bowen, talking with, yeah, talking to his assistant, Sueko, and uh, Dr. Kawaji about just the situation and talking about how he wants to take tragedy and turn it into happiness. And he said that it's ironic that science improves in this way, because even though this horrible thing happened, now we can research how to help people with radiation burns. So this was a sign, right, that we were not yeah. in for uh, we were not in for a movie with ideology. 
So, okay, I, I'm going to get to this at the end, but th- there's a point to this, and they say it. It's been said now, but like the way they're saying it is so odd. Well, like we started with fucking Nazi Germany and and, you know, evil science experiments and then the bombing of Hiroshima and radiation. And now we're in like the radiation ward and it feels like all of the things are there to maybe present an ideology through. As, right. as Honda would have in many other movies. And, and yeah. He just, he gets there and he just stops. Yeah. Yeah. So some boy creature shows up and freaks some people out, but like kids go to school and there's like this dead eviscerated rabbit on the ground in the school. It's both not very gory and also still kind of shocking. No, like I saw it. I was like, <laughs> I was, I was pretty shocked. Like, it wasn't it's like, like, it's like a rabbit explicit. head and a lot of fluff and furry bits with like a little red paint, like scattered all over the place. But it leaves the impression of like, <laughs> this fucking thing got shredded. <laughs> right, right. Like this, this boy did this to this rabbit. And also just the fact that so much had already happened. And now we're here and <laughs> there's just a rabbit corpse. I'm like, what am I watching? But, um, so the, the boy creature does show up outside the doctor's house and ends up being chased into like an oceanside cave because like the, the whole nearby village and everything's chasing him in there. And then they capture him and they determine that he's radiation proof. And all the while that this is going on, some lizard is digging in under, under the ground and like pokes his head up for a second. And I knew who that lizard was. But the people in the movie didn't know who that lizard was. Yeah. And and (laughs) all the people in Japan were metagaming here a little bit. All the people in Japan watching that movie in theaters back in 1965 didn't yet know who that was, but immediately knew we're going to make this the most famous motherfucker possible. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So then skip forward a little bit. Frankenstein's a little bit older, but I mean, he's growing like rapidly, though. So this isn't that much longer. Like aging and sizing up. He's a very large child right now, like preteen. Right, right. And he's watching a show. And the show is one of those dance shows that they used to put on TV. And it's just where everybody's like, like music's playing and the camera's moving in and out and they're dancing. And I'm I'm describing the show in detail for a reason. Pardon me. Yeah, I'm describing the, the show in detail for a reason. And that's because this, this, scene will appear three times in the movie. This is just the first time. Yeah. Um, but he's watching the, the show and there's, I guess it's just kind of overstemming him and he gets upset by it. He throws the TV out the window. And then when Swaco tries to, to calm him down, he goes for her necklace and everybody freaks out because they think that he's attacking her. And like Dr. Bowen hits him with a chair and his eyes glow green, which is just kind of a, He's indestructible, so, you know, that's just driving home that fact. Uh, so, Dr. Kawaji, the other doctor, goes to speak with the Germans because he's trying to figure out what they're dealing with exactly. Like, who is this boy who's rapidly growing all the time and is immune to radiation? And they, of course, tell him, you know, it could be Frankenstein's heart, but if you want to figure out that th- this person grew around Frankenstein's heart, you're going to have to cut off part of his body and see if it grows back. 
and he comes back and tells everyone this, like, hey, this is my plan. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut a piece of this child off. And Swaco, of course, is opposed to the idea because, of course, she would be. And then Kawaji just decides he's going to do it anyway. So, like, Dr. Bowen and uh, Swaco are off eating just burgers. Yeah. And, of course, Dr. Bowen has his Stars and Stripes chef outfit on. <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> so, Dr. Kawaji decides he's going to go through with it anyway. And they bring a camera crew there so that they can basically confirm the findings. And the light from the camera crew just freaks Frankenstein out. And he gets mad and he just starts destroying everything. And eventually they send in the police to try to come and kill him. But he is Frankenstein, so that doesn't work. And so he's massive now. And he escapes from his cell and he runs to Swaco for help. And she's like, you know, don't go. You're going to die. And but he doesn't know what to do. He's scared. So he runs off and all the destruction that he's causing is just because he's scared and they do a good job of conveying that. Like he's clearly not evil. He's just accidentally hurting people and destroying things because he's a big child. Yes. An incredibly yeah. large muscular child. Uh, That's I, right. Actually, mm, I want you to put a pin in this because there's something about Frankenstein in this movie that makes me deeply uncomfortable that this kind of plays into. Uh, we can okay. talk about this more at the end. But I, I do want you to, like, pin this point in the conversation. Okay. Yeah. Um, so some officials show up and they're trying to investigate, like, how did Frankenstein break out? What were the procedures used to keep him in place? And they find this chain that was used and they're like, well, clearly it was the chain, right? Like, this chain probably just wasn't strong enough. And as they're discussing this, they look at the ground and there's Frankenstein's hand crawling around from where he outgrew the chain and his, his hand came off or like when he was tugging on it. And so they run in, they grab the hand, they put it in fluid. So Frankenstein's traveling the countryside and eating entire animals. Cause he's a big boy. He's got to eat. Right. And they meet in Osaka to discuss things. And while they're doing this, Frankenstein approaches a party boat, which is basically the same scene that was on the TV. And it's upsetting to him again. And he like shoves it around. Uh, so cut back to the scientists discussing the fact that now his hand is moving on its own because they were able to put it in the fluid and it had enough proteins to move on its own. That's just how it works. It just slurps it up through the, through the vein holes, maybe? I don't know. I, mm. <laughs> That's a Listen, bad they, thought, isn't it? <laughs> I had a lot of questions about this. I was like, is he like a worm? Is there going to be another Frankenstein growing out of the hand now? Like, they don't really get into it too much yeah they just poured some fucking muscle milk over it and said you know called it a day (laughs) all right Uh, (laughs) um so now frankenstein's roaming the countryside and probably one of the funniest scenes in the movie to me happens then he sees a warthog and he's like i'm gonna eat that warthog and he or like some kind like, of wild boar. It's it's. It was like a boar. Yeah, yeah, it's probably meant to be a wild boar. It does look kind of warthoggy because it's not a real animal. It's like a little. It's it's a little 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 crafted thing. It's a it's a little pig. And he's meant to look <laughs> little from the perspective of Frankenstein, so it's kind of lower detailed. But it, it right, looks like right. a, a weird, cute, cartoonish piggy thing. Yeah, yeah. And he, they slightly overcrank the footage for this. He just like 
digs a hole really fast with his hands and he like pulls down some branches and stuff. He makes like a little pit trap because he expects that the pig will charge him and fall down into it and he can eat it. Um, But the townsfolk spot him up on that hill and basically mobilize the army against him. And he runs away, but all the tanks just start falling into all these traps that he's apparently made. Yeah. Yeah. I love the, the sequence of the tank falling in. The little, little bitty toy tank going, nyeh, nyeh. <laughs> It was cute. Um, and then they once again discuss just that Frankenstein's just trying to eat. He's not trying to hurt anybody. So then the third and final dance party happens. But this time it's in a cabin. And this time, the, the creature that was digging through the ground last time is the one crashing it. And he's, he, like, crashes in through the roof, destroys everything. And, of course, the authorities are blaming everything on Frankenstein because they haven't seen anything else yet. But the scientists are, of course, being like, well, that doesn't make any sense. Frankenstein wouldn't do this. This isn't Frankenstein's MO. Yeah, they're so, like, Frankenstein doesn't eat people. And I'm like, I don't know why you're so certain of that. But They just, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I think in general, that's just because like they, they do understand that this is kind of a human. They very strongly prescribe innocence to Frankenstein without any evidence to back that up. Right. Which put a second pin right there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So now the, the creature that we know is Berrigan is eating his way through farms now, like just completely destroying farms. I love the scene with the little toy horse. Yes. By the way, <laughs> Berrigan's way smaller than you might think. Like this yeah. sequence where it comes out of the ground and attacks the farm and like tears up the barn going for the animals. You're like, this guy's you're used to Godzilla scale things in every right. movie. And Berrigan's quite a bit smaller. Berrigan's yeah, yeah. maybe. I'm, I'm guessing half to a quarter the size of Godzilla. He's, yeah. he's a little dude, and yet still much bigger than Frankenstein once we see them together. Right, right. So Frankenstein, you got to think, he's big, but he's not like, he's not Godzilla. Yeah, he's like a 20-foot dude, know? not like, right. yeah, not, not, you know, 50-meter Godzilla stomping around. Right, right. So <clears throat> some kids manage to find Frankenstein in a mine shaft, which causes the army to show up, along with the scientists, because they're going to try to... At, at this point, they were like, we may have to kill him. We just have to do something. But because of the, the difference in the reports between like, the soldiers and everything, like, they, they, were, they found a creature that was glowing in the dark. And they were like, well, Frankenstein doesn't do that. So there's probably two creatures. And in order to try to figure out exactly what's going on, they do go to like a, a museum and... Mr. Kawhi, that's one of their friends, basically posits that Berrigan is a Mesozoic dinosaur, basically. The dug underground. And the, the curator's like, I don't really accept that, so that seems silly to me. He's and not Mr. wrong. Just, it's kind of fucking silly, but... It is. At it this is. point, in a world where Godzilla and Rodan and Mothra have existed, you know, Berrigan shouldn't be that out there. Well, you'd think, but, you know... They've also had to rely on, what was it, Polish paleontology? Right. So, <laughs> but, um. Yeah, so, dude, tell him, uh, tell him Triceratops <laughs> burrowed underground, had a glowing horn, and spat fire. That's right. So, they just kind of, uh, 
Mr. Kawhi leaves, and then they go and they deliver meat to Frankenstein, who is now in furs. He's, he's like made his own clothes out of the animals he's killed, basically. And the scientists are hoping to, to seek him out, hoping that he'll just remember Swaco and be calm so they can figure this out. But Dr. Kawaji does his, his heel turn and decides, you know what? No, I'm actually, I think we should just kill him, but we should kill him in a way that preserves him. And in his eyes, pouring like acid into Frankenstein's eyes is the way to do that. But he also has explosives. And while demonstrating his explosives, he attracts Barragon. And they all try to get away, but Swaco trips and Frankenstein basically comes to the rescue and they fight for the first time. And these, these are quite, these are some scenes. Yeah, so the, the, the actual fight between Frankenstein and Berrigan is a huge mixed bag, right? Like, yeah. the Berrigan suit looks decent and it's a great design and he's adorable, but it doesn't do action very well. Hence right. why, like, most yeah. of what he does, aside from kind of flail, is that, that like, heat ray that he spits. Mm-hmm. But also, now, now Frankenstein is just a dude. Frankenstein right. is just a dude in a costume, like, spray-painted with, like, a forehead prosthetic. So he can, he can do all kinds of shit. And actually, there is a bit towards the end of this fight where Frankenstein is going to fucking town on Berrigan. And mm-hmm. not only is, like, the action very good, because you just have, like, a dude scrambling around whipping the shit out of this bigger more awkward monster but like the camera work is actually done very well too many of the shots in this fight i think are too close up and too shaky which is that kind of style of like okay but you're hiding the fact that these two can't fight but in the bits where frankenstein lets loose and is like fucking anime dashing all over the place and and whipping haymakers at berrigan like the camera's moving with his body and moving with his punches in such a way as to kind of accentuate the motion. And I thought that mm-hmm. stuff was very, very good. So a lot of highs and a lot of lows to this fight between these two. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was a pretty mixed bag. But, I mean, anytime that Frankenstein's, like, wrestling Berrigan to the ground and putting him in locks and, like, pulling on his armor and everything, it's good. Yeah. Yeah. So Frankenstein ends up saving Kawaji at the end of this fight, who, of course, wanted to kill him. So, you know, makes you think. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) And then they continue to fight, and Frankenstein is mostly just throwing rocks at Berrigan, but, I mean, what are you going to do, right? And Berrigan's mostly just shooting fire back, but there was this one part where Frankenstein just, like, gets two big, fiery torches and starts dual-wielding torches against Berrigan. Yeah. And I thought that was cool. The last, like quarter of the fight or whatever like frankenstein rockily dropping the weights suddenly activates and he's beating the shit out of him with torches and like jumping all over the place and dodging and just like just whipping ass yeah yeah just wrestling and fire and rocks yeah and berrigan starts digging into the earth and like releases a heat vent there's like little blasts from under underground and everything and Frankenstein puts, like, wrestles Berrigan to the ground, but the earth is just kind of starting to give way from all the digging and the fighting and everything, and they sink together. Yeah, he, he snaps Berrigan's neck, presumably killing him, although we will learn probably not. 
Yeah, right. And then, yeah, then, like, the ground crumbles beneath them and they sink into the earth. And Frankenstein's doing this pose, and I wasn't sure if it was, like, a victory pose or if it was, like, him lamenting the fact that he's falling into the earth. It was somewhere between those two things. It was, I think it was meant to be, like, a dramatic, like, I am sad and lamenting my existence, but Frankenstein, you had time to just go somewhere else. (laughs) Just walk away. Berrigan was done. And you could have just right. like climbed away. And instead he just stood there posing and yelling until he slowly sank in. Right. It was very Austin yeah. power steamroller kind of moment. Like, man, you, <laughs> right. this was easily avoidable, but sometimes drama okay. overtakes. Look, we've all, we've all been there. We've all felt the need to be dramatic. Yeah. And then yeah. you've been dramatic and it's taking longer than you expected. So you just kind of have to commit to it. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's sinking and the scientists are like, well, I wonder if he'll ever be back, basically. And that's it. That's the movie. That's the that's movie. That's the movie. Uh, it's 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 okay. I feel okay. like it tried to do some interesting things, but like in the end, this was this was this was much more empty pulp sci-fi. Yeah. So um, if, if you yeah. don't have anything to interject with, I want to talk about the monsters of the movie. Of which yeah. we- I have a lot to, to say about the theming and what they were trying to do, but I can do that after. Yeah, we'll hit that. We've got our politics and themes section in a little bit. We'll, we'll, we'll yell at each other there for that. <laughs> so Frankenstein and Berrigan, really the two you know, big creature effects of the movie. Frankenstein is a dude. Frankenstein is a dude in a wig with like a forehead and brow prosthetic and is is not even like a ripped dude. Like it's he's actually kind of weirdly lanky. They have a couple different actors to portray Frankenstein, I think, because they have one for like young child and they have one for that kind of like lanky large teen phase and then one for the kind of fully grown and matured Frankenstein's monster. Mm -hmm. I told you to put a pin in a couple of things. And I want to talk about something about Frankenstein as a movie that makes me deeply uncomfortable. And I don't, I don't know that this is necessarily intentional, but fuck, it's kind of hard to avoid. Yeah. I think Frankenstein's monster comes across as an extremely gross view of developmentally disabled people. I got the vibes, yeah. Yeah? So think of this, right? It's a regular person, but with the big sloping forehead and the dull eyes overshadowed by the brow and, like, missing teeth, the big blank open mouth, uh, kind of face most of the time. Um, They prescribe it, like, stupidity and innocence both in incredible amounts, which falls deeply into the kinds of stereotypes people have about you know, for example, people with Down syndrome or other, you know, developmental disabilities. Um, and then, like, it's just, it's just, it doesn't feel right. Right? Right. Like, and I don't think it, it's, it's intentional. It's reflected in... Fuck, you can't avoid that once you think about it. Yeah. No, I thought about that during the scene where he... Is going for her necklace. Yeah, that's the other thing. We don't talk about this. There's kind of a scene where it's kind of played like it could be that he's maybe like attempting to sexually assault her. Because especially because it's the framing. It's it's just like him kind of obsessing over the woman on the television. And then he goes for her. And again, like plays into some really gross tropes and stereotypes we have 
right? Yeah, or about yeah. about disabled people. Um, and then yeah, then it's like, oh, he's just going for the necklace. Well, why is he going for the necklace? Because it's a shiny thing, and it never ends yeah, up being cause, cause really he's an important. Innocent boy, you know, you know, it never ends up being important. It's just he got distracted by the shiny thing, and like. You know, it's hard because what they're going for is that this Frankenstein's monster as a creature that grew very quickly and never received education or socialization. It might have had the capability to be a thinking, rational person. Right. I mean, it's able to make traps and stuff, but right. it is ultimately. Especially, man, some of those like the 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 slack jawed missing teeth and the big sloping forehead into the the furrowed eyes is mm-hmm. it's just really unfortunate yeah you know i will say that th- this movie has a direct sequel frankenstein does not come back but there are like descendants of frankenstein sort of and they are handled in a very different way that i think better captures the sort of primordial man look that they were going for Without, you know, being because the other thing is Frankenstein doesn't look like Frankenstein's monster that much. He does not. Right. He doesn't have any kind of stitching where it because which makes sense because he's not stitched together. He's a new person grown around the heart. But like there's otherwise very little to call it Frankenstein's monster. It's just. A weird caveman dude that grew around a radioactive immortal heart. Which is such a cool idea. It is a cool idea. In general. There's some great sci-fi stuff in here. I love the duality between Frankenstein and Berrigan where they are both like consumers. Frankenstein right. has to constantly, you know, intake protein in order to support his growth. And Berrigan is a mindless creature that is just doing its instinctive hunting thing. And because of its size, it eats up whole farms and parties, you right. know? And speaking of Berrigan, we kind of mentioned this earlier. Berrigan's suit, I think is very interesting. I think he's adorable. Clearly, very clearly the Japanese public did because this motherfucker gets famous, but the suit can't really do an awful lot in this movie. Now, Berrigan's suit does end up being taken by Subaraya and gets like repurposed multiple times on Ultraman. There's like three or four different notable Ultraman monsters that were built off of the Berrigan suit, which may have helped continue because you just see Berrigan, but with a different head, like helped cement kind of how popular his general shape is. Right. Because he's a dumpy, he's a dumpy little fella. He's a little guy. He's a little guy. He's got these weird (laughs) floppy ear things. He's got a little, little, little nose horn got big old eyes he's he's kind of cute he's like a weird lizard rabbit thing little mole creature yeah a little mole lizard (laughs) rabbit feller triceratops he's cute yeah so good news while i didn't like this movie a ton this movie was made by the dream team which i think yeah this was this was honda directing subaraya doing the effects ifakube doing the score i think the score for the movie was really good I want to say parts of it were reused from Varen the Unbelievable or maybe some other earlier uh, Ifakube scores. But like, you know, hey, if it ain't broke, don't fuck with it. Right, right, right. No, there's there's a there's a track that plays um, in one of the city scenes. I think it's the one right before the tanks come out and fall into the 
pits that I'm pretty sure I've heard before. Because I was like, wait, this is really familiar to me. Yeah, and a lot of these tunes and melodies will get reused across the Godzilla franchise, even by like other composers will take and riff off of them. So the Showa era 1954 to 1974 of Godzilla ends up having a very kind of consistent sound to it as a result of a, it mainly being Ifukube and, and B everybody who's not Ifukube just going, well, we got to do what that guy did, you know, and maybe not as good, but you know, who can, who can replace the goat? Right. We already talked about how there were multiple attempts. We kind of moved that to earlier on. Okay, here's something for you. So we mentioned that the the English cut of the movie, the American cut, is not drastically different from the Japanese version, aside from like deeply racist, you know, voiceover work. Oof. Yeah. To, but to the point that like Ifukube's score made it to the Western version, which has been a big problem with a lot of these Western releases, cutting and replacing Ifukube's score. I think Varen did that. I think the Mysterians did that. And it's like, why the fuck would you do that? Yeah, why they do that? Yeah, because, because I don't know. Because they didn't want to pay him, maybe? I don't know how licensing works. That's fair. But it's fucking awful. Uh, one thing that, that the American uh, producers did want is they wanted a different ending. They wanted an ending where Frankenstein, because they were so impressed with the octopus scene in King Kong versus Godzilla specifically which is interesting because it's not that impressive of a scene well i guess it is for the time but they were so impressed that they wanted to have a scene after frankenstein kills berrigan where frankenstein then has to fight a giant octopus and he and the giant octopus oh. sink into the earth i see uh, so the, the crew had to get together after they're finished filming finished editing the movies out everything and come back and reshoot this fucking ending <laughs> and it sucked. So then the Americans didn't use it anyway. So there are right, cuts well. of the movie. Like you can find if you look around, it's not lost to time. Cuts of the movie that have the alternate ending in it, but it's not good. <laughs> I was going to say, well, I'm glad the octopus didn't die for nothing. Yeah. <laughs> it, but didn't, you know. didn't get fucking eaten by, uh, by who, who, who is it? That, it was super Raya that ate the octopus. It right. Was, yeah. in King Kong so. versus Godzilla. Yeah. It's just like that one. <laughs> that one will grant me vitality. <laughs> Let's see. I don't really have any other major notes. I mean, I mentioned that Berrigan got like stupid popular in Japan. Um, like mm -hmm, to mm -hmm. the point that like there's so there's almost as many references to Berrigan as there are to Godzilla. You know, if you love Dragon Ball, the original Dragon Ball, you may remember in one of the early episodes, there's a, a scene where, where Goku is showing off like how wild the world is and there's a bunch of dinosaur-like monsters attacking, and one of them's just Baragon. <laughs> Baragon is very clearly the inspiration behind the like Nidoran line in Pokemon. Yeah, there's yep. there's tons tons of if you need like a weird little cartoon monster to pop up, one of them's gonna look like Baragon. It's it's yeah. just you're gonna have a pterodactyl. You're going to have a Godzilla thing. You're going to have a Berrigan for some reason. It rounds it out. Yeah, I think. He's, he's, you can't always put Mothra. He's extremely popular in a way that is outsized to his initial appearance. Because, like, Berrigan's not going to make many more appearances. Berrigan's in, in some video games, right? But, like, again, right. before Berrigan ever got a second appearance, 
Berrigan will make a brief appearance in Destroy All Monsters and otherwise not be seen again until the early 2000s. It's, wow. it's, it's, a, it's a one-hit wonder that was just really popular in Japan. That's interesting. More, far more than even the movie he comes from. Hmm. So let's, let's talk politics and themes. Yeah. Now, I want to give you the floor first because you think you might have found something in here. <laughs> All right. So I don't think that the point it's trying to make is deep. I, th- I think it wants to be. I think it ends up very shallow. At the beginning of the movie, uh, Dr. Bowen says that he wants to create happiness from tragedy, right? Yeah. If none of that had happened, Berrigan probably would have killed a lot more people. And I think that's it. Okay. Because if Frankenstein wasn't there to stop him. Maybe, maybe. Um, Because, yeah, Berrigan wasn't like... In in another movie, Berrigan would have been woken up by, like, Frankenstein, right? It would have... There would have been some tie to, but Berrigan's just kind of there. So... Yeah. It's hard. For me, it's hard because, like we mentioned early on, the beginning of the movie lays the groundwork for so much loaded imagery and leaves so much room for potential themes. And instead it doesn't do really much of anything with that. I don't think Honda had his heart in this movie. I don't think so. Right? Like I know there's going to continue to be Honda has had movies before that were not deeply full of ideology, but this is kind of a sloppy movie as well in terms of its concept, in terms of its execution. You know, there's some good, there's some good editing in there. There's, there's some really creative camera work, but like overall, this feels like a lower effort work from, from all of them, right? Ifukube was using parts of his previous scores. Berrigan just uses Varen's roar, but pitched differently. One of the two monsters is a dude with a with right. a fake rubber forehead, you know, right. and and a, and a mouthpiece for his fake bad teeth. It's you know, and then yeah, like Honda was like, "Look, man, some some we gotta. There's got to be some radiation somewhere here. If I'm doing this movie, that's that's in my contract." Right. But then they were like, "Well, what are we gonna do with it?" And he was like, "Man, I don't fucking. Know. I just got off the biggest Godzilla movie ever, and I gotta do a follow up like this year." When was when was the next? Yeah, this same year, he's going to also film and release Invasion of the Astro Monster, which is the Godzilla Rodan King Ghidorah follow up to Ghidorah, the three headed monster. Damn is to my recollection, a, a like very good, very interesting. You'd think it would be a retread and it's very much not. So to me, this feels like. This was this was shot in a couple of months, put together, thrown together. Here's a good pulp. We wanted a fucking Frankenstein movie. Here's a Frankenstein movie. Let's get it off the list. You know, I've got bigger things to do. You know, I don't think this was yeah, a studio priority. It. You know, but despite that, it ends up being like it, it's a decently fun pulpy watch. It just doesn't doesn't mean anything, you know, and and it's not yeah. as good as other future pulpy but meaningless sci-fi movies that will come out of this series. Yeah. So here is, here's a very dreaded, we've kind of been talking about this already all throughout final verdict. Is the movie even good? 
I don't eh. I don't think so. I think it's a mixed bag, but I think it's mixed in a in a in an ultimately not great way. Yeah, I It had so much potential. Yeah. Yeah. There's the bones there of something bigger and better, but this was clearly done on a relatively tight budget. It was done quickly. It is not there's not an intentionality behind this movie like you tend to see with Honda works. So yeah, it's, it ends up being very much to me like a filler movie. So yeah. And I mean, if he had to get out a Frankenstein movie in the same year, he's trying to create the sequel to Ghidorah, the three headed monster. Then yeah, I get it. I will say this to my memory, Ghidorah, the three headed monster. Well, not Ghidorah, the three headed monster uh, invasion of the Astro monster ends up being a really, really good, almost as good, if not better, than Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster. Uh, So the choice was correct to put more focus on that movie and just get this one out of the way. But, you know, it is what it is. There's a world out there where this movie was, you know, put together with more intentionality and, and meant to be something grander, but we'll never know it. No. So where where does this movie, where does Frankenstein versus Berrigan fit into the broader Godzilla mythos? Uh, Well, as we mentioned, Berrigan's stupid popular in Japan very quickly. Berrigan ends up being in. I guess Destroy All Monsters would have been well before any Godzilla video games were a thing because Destroy All Monsters is in the 60s. So, yeah, way before video games are a thing. But uh, Berrigan will make a a small cameo in Destroy All Monsters. They're not able to use him as much as they would like because the suit's not in great shape when they get it back. Because, of course, they've been hacking it up for parts for Ultraman monsters. So they get the suit back and it's like they can put it back together. But it's just, not, you know, and they rebuild some parts of it, but it's not in good shape. So he, he really only gets a cameo in Destroy All Monsters. After that, okay. he doesn't appear until the early 2000s, but he's a popular setting in many video games, and his return in the 2000s is extremely memorable and really doubles down on the cute aspect of Berrigan, I think. Yeah. There's also a sequel to this movie called War of the Gar- Gargantuas, which we will cover, I think, two movies from now. And that is frequently referenced in Godzilla media. It's crossed over with. It's one of those movies that is in the background of the the two 2000s Mechagodzilla movies. They're, you know, in comics and books and all kinds of stuff. Uh, the two, the gargantuas of that movie. So there's multiple things that kind of tie this directly to Godzilla. It's a lot firmer than, you know, say, Dagora was. Right, right. But uh, but yeah, so that's this is this is not a huge movie, but there are parts of it that are enduring kind of to this day. And and most of that, to be honest, is Berrigan and is the sequel. For example, the sequel is in the Criterion collection. Uh, It's you can actually if you've got HBO Max, at least as of now, because Warner Brothers hasn't dismantled all of that shit yet. You can watch War of the Gargantuas like remastered original theatrical version. You know, you can watch it on Criterion, but there's no such version for Frankenstein versus Berrigan. So, 
you know, it's the fate of some movies simply to uplift things around them, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it, it set some, it set the stage yeah. for some better things. And that, that is sometimes the most important thing you can do. Charlotte, we got any final thoughts on this movie? Um, I think I would simply be nice to the boy. Yeah, just be nice to the boy. It's pretty easy. Yeah. Don't, don't, <laughs> don't chain him up in a prison cell. Folks, that's a wrap on this episode. Thank you all so much for joining us on our journey so far. Hold on. Uh-oh. Is there, is there a breaking news? You, you said that we were going to talk about um, the scheduling nightmare. You're correct, and I still have not. Well, then this is not a wrap on this episode. Let's rewind it a little bit. <laughs> so, from here, here's the thing. Castle Bravo is going to be coming out slightly less regularly than it did in season one. And the reason for that is that almost every single episode we have planned through the end of the series now has a guest attached to it. So that's going to require us to get together with guests and, you know, work around their schedules in a way that is probably going to hold us up a little bit more. But that's fine, right? Castle Bravo will just come out as it's ready every time. You know, that means we may have a week between mo or episodes. It may be a couple weeks, but we'll get there. We'll get it done. And we're going to bring an yeah. exciting variety of guests to each, almost each episode. I think right now there's uh, one more episode of this season that doesn't have a guest. There's the first episode of season three has no guests intentionally. And then I've got one, two, three episodes in season four that don't have a guest. But like otherwise, we're we're booked up with buddies to talk about some movies with. So yeah. it's going to be a good time. It's going to be a good time. Yeah. And with that, that is a wrap on this episode. For real this time. <laughs> Thank you all so much for joining us on our journey so far. You can follow us on Twitter for more of our sparkling personalities. I'm at Derby City Derek. And I'm at Vicero Complex. That's V-I-S-C-E-R-O-C-O-M-P-L-E-X. And you can follow the show itself at Castle Bravo Pod for production updates. Take care, everyone. Bye. Castle Bravo is a production of Derek Van Dyke and Charlotte Landale. All editing is performed by Derek Van Dyke. Special thanks to Kyrie Lamont for our art assets and to David Van Dyke for our theme song, Pools of Memory. <laughs>